everyone and welcome to the 10th episode in the Agilent podcast series. If you're tuning in for the first time, my name is Victoria Wadsworth and I'm the Associate Vice President of Brand, Business PR and Customer Experience at Agilent Technologies. Like most companies at Agilent, we're often asked about who we are and what we stand for. These podcasts address who we are as a business by discussing the values and themes close to our heart and the hearts of our customers. In each of our podcast episodes, we aim to investigate a specific theme with the help of three experts, all coming to the subject with their own unique points of view. In this episode, our theme is something close to us all, the safety and quality of the food we eat and its impact on our economy, health and environment. As farmers have been asked to do more with less and consumer tastes remain at odds with our health, what we eat is a hot topic. And here at Agilent, we have a stake in it as partners in laboratory analysis. Let's take a closer look at what we're consuming to shed light on the science behind the food we eat. Before turning to the experts for their opinions, I wanted to get a sense of where the world of food quality analysis stands today and where it might be going. So my first conversation was with an expert, but also with a colleague right here at Agilent. Hi, my name is Mary McBride. I'm Associate Vice President of Applied Markets and Regulations at Agilent Technologies. The applied markets at Agilent include our energy, chemicals, materials, along with forensics, food, and environmental segment markets. Hi, Mary. Thanks for joining us. Mary, why do you see food quality standards as being so important? It's really important because it's all about trust. Regulations and standards are set so that consumers, and and we're all consumers, can have confidence that the food they're eating is safe. So it's such a broad end goal. How do we actually go about helping our customers on this front? Our customers in the food industry, and including those in government and contract testing laboratories, have to comply with regulations and standards and they have to use specific test methods. So in order for Agilent to best serve and support our customers who have to use those test methods, we really need to understand them and continuously look for ways to improve them. So what initiatives does Agilent implement to support its customers in this market that are affected by these evolving food standards and regulations? First, we we help our customers stay up to date on regulations and standards. We're continuously monitoring for pending changes to existing regulations, and and we're listening for intelligence that signal changes that might be coming down the pipe. Second, we're really active in a number of consensus standard development organizations, such as AOAC, ISO, and CODEX. And Agilent technical experts participate directly to develop new standards. And then finally, we support our customers directly in their own labs by working with them to develop, evaluate, and implement new regulatory compliant test methods. You mentioned the AOAC partnership. I wonder if you could tell us a little more about who they are and what kind of progress we can achieve alongside them. AOAC, or Uh, The Association of Official Analytical Chemists is an international voluntary consensus standards development organization that is really focused on the development of food safety standards. Our technical experts um, participate 
actively with AOIC to develop standard test methods by writing or reviewing standards, by supporting laboratory testing and evaluation, sometimes even using our, our own labs. For example, right now we're currently working with AOIC on the development of both targeted and non-targeted standards for authenticity testing in milk, honey, and olive oil. It's really exciting to be a part of this work because these new standards will be the first standards for authenticity testing anywhere. And, and it's really great to see these coming because they're, they're definitely uh, very much needed and, and long overdue. Well, it sounds like there's some exciting developments in the immediate future, but looking further ahead, where do you see the pursuit of food safety taking us in the years to come? The future is, is, a, is a bit of an unknown in the food industry at the moment. COVID has had a huge impact. It's, it's fundamentally changed the food industry in huge ways. For example, we've seen massive disruptions in global food supply chains, which have resulted in in real food insecurity uh, in a number of countries all over the world. At the same time, consumers' buying behaviors have also really massively shifted. We're seeing much more online buying than ever before. E-commerce is up 70%. And we've seen um, more home cooking and a, a new focus on foods that are more healthy and nutritious. So the food industries had to shift really quickly to adapt to these changes, and they're really moving quite rapidly to adopt new digital technologies, including things like blockchain for, um, for tracing and tracking. Now, all of these changes are driving the need for new regulations and standards, um, and I think that, you know, it's really hard to know exactly where we're going. So I think the, the answer to the question of where we're going is, Stay tuned, it's, a, it's an exciting adventure we're on. Thanks so much for your time today, Mary. With the future such an open book, I wanted to get more of a perspective from the front line of food research. So my next stop was Ohio State University, where some exciting partnerships have been forged between academia, technology, and food manufacturers. My second guest this episode is a world-leading researcher in the field of flavor. My name is Devin Peterson and I'm a professor in the Department of Food Science and Technology at The Ohio State University. My expertise is in the area of analytical and flavor chemistry. The science of flavor sounds like a fascinating field. What are you and your colleagues setting out to achieve through your work? Our overall research goals are to understand the compounds that contribute to flavor. And so in this, we tried to understand the molecules that are in food that contribute to these different sensations, such as smell or taste, such as sweet, or again, um, tactile cues or things such as heat or cooling. Menthol is a good example of that. I hadn't really thought of taste from a scientific perspective before. Are there similarities to the study of other senses, like hearing and sight, in the way that our brains interpret the different signals? In our case of flavor, we're looking at the compounds that ultimately translate into the flavors that we perceive in foods. We have three different sets of these chemical antennae that are in the oral cavity and responding to some of the molecules in the food that you're eating and ultimately creating patterns that are interpreted by your brain as flavor. 
And so we have three different sets of these chemical antennae, uh, ones that result in smell or olfaction, uh, ones that come from your tongue or gustation. And the third category is known as somatosensory, which provides sensations such as temperature effects, so I can feel heat or cold. Those can come from, for example, if I'm drinking uh, a scotch, my mouth can feel warm. Even though the temperature in my mouth is not increasing in actual temperature or heat. That sounds fascinating. So how do you go about your research practically when you're at the intersection of the science of small molecules and the human subjectivity of flavor? And so it's often these sort of hybrid analytical sensory approaches, uh, sensory being uh, people perceiving uh, you know, these compounds and helping us understand again, what is it that is driving these perceptions? The instruments that we would commonly use for discovery would involve GCMS, LCMS, and NMR. So again, GC more for things that are volatile, uh, things that I would smell, LC or liquid chromatography um, for things that might be more for taste, and NMR uh, generally for structural elucidation, but also to look at molecular interactions. And then we use people as detectors to really understand of these molecules, which ones do we respond to? And this helps us really put together, if you will, a map of what is driving flavor perception. What sort of applications does your work have for those companies who provide the food in our supermarkets and on our tables? I believe you have an initiative currently at Ohio State that focuses on exactly that, right? FREC, uh, or the Flavor Research and Education Center, is a partnership between academic researchers and industrial leaders focused on food innovation. The goal is to bring the food industry together as a whole to really help them advance understanding uh, basic knowledge for their key challenges uh, that are current and even in the future. How do you provide understanding to promote healthier eating behavior? For example, whole wheat, the lack of consumption of, say, whole grain, um, is a major impact on our health and wellness. You know, the goal again is how do we how do we bring together this collective, if you will, group of the food industry, uh, interfacing it with academia to really help with innovation and providing better foods that you know meet consumer needs and health impact. So this is much more than just about food tasting nice. If I'm hearing you correctly, you're suggesting that there's a very positive and wide-reaching health benefit to your work if the right people can be convinced. Poor dietary patterns are responsible for more deaths globally than any other factor, such as smoking or um, alcohol or uh, sexually transmitted diseases, which says that food has a tremendous opportunity to be doing more. So how do we understand what is the molecular underpinnings of health promotion from the diet, providing guidance and tools to then how do we create healthier food systems? as well as how do we understand what drives food choice? And so if we're making healthier products, we want the consumers to choose them and ultimately then have that health benefit. Thank you so much for talking to us, Devin. For our final step on this journey, I wanted to go a little closer to the source because of course, without the farmers and growers, supermarket shelves would be almost empty. Most of us are already aware that genetic science engineering is helping us to achieve more reliable, enduring crops. But I wanted to better understand those technologies and their impact worldwide. Our last guest today is an expert in exactly that. Hello, I'm Dr. Mahalishmi Arujanan, and I'm the Global Coordinator for the International Service for the Acquisition of Agri-Biotech Applications. My area of expertise is in science communication, biosafety regulations, and biotechnology. 
There's been so much innovation and change in global food production. I wonder if you could start by telling us, Dr. Mahalachumi Arajanan, a little bit more about the purpose and the work of the International Service for the Acquisition of Agribiotech Applications, or ISAAA for short, within that landscape. ISA is the authority for the data on commercialized biotech crops. We focus on engaging with all stakeholders involved in food production. Our work is focused on developing countries. We are very active in Asia and in Africa, and we are expanding our role in Latin America and the Arab region. We published the annual report on commercialized biotech crops, and this is the most cited literature in crop biotechnology. We also include environmental and socioeconomic impact of biotech crops. Besides this, we also own the biggest database on approved biotech crops, and we call this the Genetic Modification Approval Database. So this database helps policymakers and regulators to make informed decisions in the adoption of biotech crops. So what biotech innovations are making the biggest difference in our efforts to grow enough food sustainably? In agri-biotechnology industry, the latest innovation that helps sustain farming efforts in developing countries, I would name two. One is genetic modification and the other one is gene editing. The impact of genetic modification in agriculture is just so profound and our data shows that developing countries have transformed so much. Africa is very exciting. They are moving towards being a bread basket with the approval of biotech corn, cotton and cowpea. The other one is new breeding technologies that include gene editing. What we saw during the genetic modification era was the commodities being developed by MNCs, leaving behind crops like cassava, sorghum, and chickpea. Now, the public sectors can develop these uh, crops and develop new varieties by using breeding technologies. What we want is informed decision-making at all levels, whether it's policymakers, public, or regulators on all these technologies. Is it fair to say that farmers today face a particularly daunting task as they try to feed more and more people? We now even have the taste of a pandemic, which is the first in our lifetime. But can you now imagine that farmers are facing pandemic in agriculture every day? Remember the ring spot virus that wrecked Hawaiian papaya in 1992? The Nipah virus that killed the swine industry in Malaysia that was in 1998? The list just goes on. And they are battling with dying crops, just like uh, how we are battling COVID-19. So these farmers need the technology, just like how we are just waiting for vaccines. But these new technologies have come up against scepticism and even fear, haven't they? Why do you think that is? New technologies always create fear among especially the non-technical people. So we're talking about the public. But we see these crops that are coming out from these technologies are really helping reduce world hunger and in a manner which is sustainable. So we are not creating so much of a negative impact to the planet. A lot of foods are wasted due to damage caused by pests and diseases. The countries that adopt these technologies will be more food secured. They will be able to cope crisis and they will have more job opportunities for their graduates and young people. So do you think if we can overcome these concerns, we already have the technologies we need to transform global food production? CRISPR and other latest gene editing tools will certainly revolutionize agriculture. And there is no doubt about this. The question is just which countries are going to lead and be progressive and who is going to 
sit still with a wait and see attitude. We need farms to be located nearer to where consumers are. We need urban farming. We need younger farmers. And for all these things to happen, we need more biotech crops and not just the big commodity crops such as corn and soy. For other crops, fruits and vegetables to be bred, we need these new uh, tools such as CRISPR. But at the end of the day, it is not just benefiting the farmers, but consumers as well, because we have food security and that too with minimal environmental and health impact. Yes, I think that's something that we can agree is hugely important. Thank you, Maha. Having enough food available for our population is one huge challenge and making sure that it's safe and of high quality is definitely another. But our three guests today left me feeling optimistic that we're up to the task, if we can collaborate effectively and embrace the science. Our guest today opened my eyes to the vast amount of technology that supports and provides innovation to the food supply chain. We often don't think much about that when we're at the table, enjoying the simple pleasures of a nice meal, but there's world-changing science in every mouthful. I'm Victoria Wadsworth, and I hope to see you for our next episode soon.